Good evening and welcome to the University of Portland for our visitors. Welcome to BC Auditorium if it's your first trip here. And uh, I'd like to express my gratitude. My name is, I should express my name first. Uh, I am uh, Dr. Karen Eifler and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we direct the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American culture here at the university. And we are both really grateful for professors and students who helped us get the word out about tonight's Zom lecture and to the local church and to parishes in Southwest Washington for really going through the community and making sure you know great things are happening uh, at the University of Portland. Just a couple of announcements before introductions begin. Um, we are, this is our very first event of the year, and we, I want to make sure that you know we have a really full year coming up, and we have lots of calendars um, up on the tables outside of the auditorium for you to pick up on your way out, and uh, you'll be pretty astonished, I think, at the breadth of things. We think that we have tickled every fancy in our programming this year, starting on... Um, one of the things I really, the one event coming up I wanted to highlight, I'm super excited about tonight, but I also want to make sure you know that this Friday, um, David Haas, internationally known um, liturgical musician, is going to be giving a concert for free at his alma mater. We gave him an honorary doctorate at the university a couple of years ago, and he's um, engaging in a bit of a homecoming for us and doing a concert in Chapel of Christ the Teacher that will be at 7 o'clock and uh, following, our, and we'll have a reception afterwards with lots of good food because that's what we do. That's how we roll in the Garavena Center is attach some great food uh, to what we do. If you want to make sure not to miss anything, we do have sign-ups, sign-up sheets on tables uh, outside the auditorium. You can uh, arrange to get a, our monthly electronic newsletter and weekly podcasts that are reflections on the Sunday readings uh, that Father Gordon produces. And if you are a teacher of any stripe, K-12, we have an agreement with our School of Education that if you sign the sheet up at the top of the stairs, we can give you free professional development units for any Garaventa Center event that you attend. So um, I think those are the housekeeping details. Oh, and also, uh, last housekeeping, if you are a student who is here as part of a class, at the end of uh, our lecture tonight, there will be a huge buffet of um, sign-up sheets in the hallway with professors' names. And you can sign your name, and we'll make sure that you get credit for having been here. Okay. Well, as I mentioned, the Garavana Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture is delighted to kick off a new year with this ZOM lecture, which is sort of an academic homecoming event here in the second week of classes. One thing I love about hanging out with the local Holy Cross community here is how they keep the memories of their brothers vibrant even long after they have joined the communion of saints so from time to time, they talk about Father John Zom, for whom this lecture is named, with great affection and respect, and it's like he's sitting right there at the table with us. From their stories, I can tell you that Father Zom had a keen scientific mind, a vibrant literary imagination, and a robust faith. 
As a scientist, his search for truth in all aspects of life extended to the ultimate quest for truth that animated his faith. His work drives home the conviction that leavens Catholic higher education, that rigorous probing into the intelligibility of the universe will reveal more truth about God. It's that spirit of beholding faith and reason as complementary paths to integrity and truth that the Zahn Lecture honors. And these are heady days on the bluff. New buildings, energetic and brilliant students, talented, dedicated faculty and staff led by our president, Father Mark L. Porman. And it says right here, please be acknowledged. Father Porman's apparently bottomless energy has been catalytic in providing UP with an ambitious vision for the next few years. Helming the academic division of the university is our provost, Dr. Tom Green, and as he is the University of Portland's chief academic officer, we've invited him to provide the formal introduction of tonight's Zom lecturer. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tom Green to the podium. It is always great to have the unswerving support of Father Corman for the academic division, and uh, we appreciate his attendance at many academic events throughout the year. Good evening, and thank you, Karen, and thank you, Father Gordon. It's a challenging thing to sift through the resume of someone who is as accomplished as she is humble and decide what the audience should know about the evening's speaker. You want to know that you're in for a treat, but you don't want the speaker to blush too much, all right? Tonight, that's my job, and I've decided to turn to a personal experience. I first heard Dr. Christine Fuhrer-Henze at Collegium, perhaps the finest mission-centered professional development experience I've ever had. And she spoke of Catholic social teaching so beautifully that it became a defining moment for me. That was years ago in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I still remember it. She was compelling, inspiring, and scholarly. So I think we're in for a beautiful treat tonight as she becomes the 18th ZOM lecturer to be welcomed to the bluff for this signature academic event. In an era when academics tend to be more and more specialized, it's a treat to meet one who cannot be pinned down to a single narrow strand of scholarly work. Dr. Fira Hinzi's keen mind and capacious heart have led her to explore, teach, and write on Christian social ethics, power and social transformation, and economic ethics as they relate to the family, gender, and work. Her ability to make complex theological and ethical bodies of thought accessible to wide audiences, and in particular, her true genius as a warm and generous listener who relentlessly helps others find common ground on their quest to creating common good. Put Dr. Fairhansy in steady demand as a speaker on stages throughout the country when she's not engaged with her own students at Fordham University. Not to mention, how many people do you know have written a book called Glass Ceilings and Dirt Floors? 
I think it's an intriguing title. To the long and impressive list of places Dr. Farah Hinzi has shared the fruits of her robust theological imagination and compassionate heart, we are pleased tonight to add the University of Portland. And now for another intriguing title. Tonight's lecture is Against the Grain, Could Zeal for Solidarity Be UP's Gift for Our Fractious Times? Please help me welcome our 2017 ZOM lecturer, Dr. Christine Kerr-Hinsey. And thank you all for being here. I know there's many other places you could be tonight, so thank you for being here. It's been an honor and a pleasure to prepare this talk. And, you know, um, someday you may be being introduced before you talk. You know, it's kind of like, oh, no pressure. No pressure. You know, I don't know who that was they were just talking about, but hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll do this. Okay. So, you picked a really good place to come to school, you students. I've been researching you. <laughs> Father Basil Moreau and the educational mission of the Holy Cross Congregation is the reason that all of us are here today at the University of Portland. He was born in France and he lived in terribly fractious and fractured times. Um, he lived in the early 19th century, right after the French Revolution. It was a time when the church was suppressed, when um, religion was laughed at, um, when people were unchurched. And uh, we live in difficult times too, right? Um, fast forward to 2017, and we live in divided and fractious times, maybe just different kinds of difficulties. But it's important, those of you who study history, I know you all do some, to remember that um, the terrible things that we're dealing with in the world today, and there are terrible things, um, uh, are not unique. That suffering and problems and difficulties have been true in every period of history. So we have a founder of the Holy Cross congregation who lived in one of those really tough times. Somebody do the next slide. I think somebody's trying to help me back there. Doesn't want to. Oh, there we go. By all accounts, Father Moreau was a very holy man. He was a man, they say, who was filled with nearly a consuming zeal to serve and renew the church. And his path to doing so was through education. He embraced a, a heart-centered, there it is, um, a heart-centered approach to things. He definitely was a man of the mind. He was an educator. But he saw, and you've heard this as you were deciding to come here, right? It's the mind and the heart and all that, those together. Um, he was devoted to uh, a spirituality of the heart, starting with the cross. That's why he named him the Holy Cross, fathers and sisters, right, and brothers. Um, so he had this zeal and this piety that was very ardent for the cross, 
Um, you see this uh, on the campus, that's very evident. Um, this coming week, it's the exaltation of the Holy Cross, which is a special feast for the Holy Cross congregation. Um, focus on the cross, as well as on uh, Our Lady of Sorrows, right? Mary under the title of Our Lady of Sorrows. And we see those two of those images are from your campus. So you see images of this idea of Mary who suffered, Jesus who suffered, really hit him in the heart and was something that he oriented his whole congregation around. And going beyond that, the Sacred Heart, that's a window from your Sacred Heart uh, uh, Chapel. Um, he really related to this idea of the heart of Jesus being where he wanted his community members to be. Do all your work in the heart of Jesus. Like, what does that even mean, right? Um, but this idea that you want to do everything from the heart of love and compassion that is the divine as we've met, as they have as he's been met in Jesus. And so all these signs continue to mark us all this time later on, on UP's campus, as well as in the communities. Partly, so this, this is his big thing. He's, he was really into zeal. He wanted to create students who had zeal for service. He wanted his community members to have zeal. And it's an interesting word because I don't think we use it that much today. Um, but because he was such a zealous person, partly, he was also um, an angular personality. He was a tough cookie and wasn't always easy to get along with. Just ask Father Edward Soren, who was an equally tough cookie, who founded University of Notre Dame. They fought a lot. This is somebody describing Father Moreau. Ascetic, iron-willed, flinty, at times an imperious personality. And the early years are, of the congregation are filled with stories of tension and conflict and rejection. But as Michael Garvey has written, both Father Moreau, and by the way, on the handout, I'm kind of following along, you'll see longer quotes and stuff that I'm using, so that might be of help. Um, as Michael Garvey has written, both Father Moreau and the whole story of the Holy Cross congregation gives rich occasion to, quote, marvel at what happens when an all-too-human nature is infiltrated by divine grace a process much like the growth of saxifrage, those little alpine flowers that burst through the rock. It's a nice image. Father Moreau had a mission for his community, and here it is. It's on your sheet as well. To educate in the faith by developing the mind, cultivating the heart, enkindling zeal for service, encouraging hope in the cross, and uniting with one another as family. And all those words are important, and we'll be thinking about them further here. Um, and again, notice mind, heart, service, zeal, hope in the cross, unity, family. But first I want to talk a little bit more about zeal. <clears throat> what does it mean? Well, for Father Moreau, it was a, it was a religious intensity. Again, he was somebody who was consumed with zeal to repair and serve the church through education. Today, I'm not so sure we like this word too much. It kind of goes against our cooler sensitivity, sensibilities. We kind of are afraid of someone who's too zealous, 
or we use that term zealot, right? Um, we might link it to the term fanatic. You know, we say he is so zealous in his exercise regime, you know, that it makes us all nervous. Or uh, you can think of other examples, right? So the word zeal or zealous doesn't really play as well today. And so why not just use, you know, enthusiastic or passionate? We use those words, right? What does, the, what does this word add to our vocabulary if we're going to say something, we have zeal for something? It's interesting to look at the dictionary definitions and synonyms. And again, those are on your sheet. Um, zeal adds... Diligent enthusiasm. So not just enthusiasm, but diligent enthusiasm. Zeal implies intense emotion that compels action. Zeal implies energetic and unflagging pursuit of an aim or devotion to a cause. These other things, passion, enthusiasm, might spark, but they, wouldn't, they don't sustain action. Zeal is enthusiasm that's put to steady, long-haul work. So it's kind of like a pilot light that keeps you going. Um, and it can be turned up and down. And uh, zeal sort of sounds like it's turned up, right? But it's, it's this idea that what's, what keeps you going over the long haul for something? And that's what zeal adds, that sort of long-hauledness. If we fast forward to today and UP and the CSC educational mission today, we find a different situation, but we also find a lot of the same things that Father Moreau found. In the midst of our fractious and needy and beautiful world, we see lots of conflicting passions and diverse viewpoints and disagreements and a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow. We've also become a lot more pluralistic and diverse than the schools that Father Moreau first founded, right? We're not all Catholic anymore. We come from different places. We come from different viewpoints. Um, some of us are um, not, some of us are other forms of Christi Christians. Some of us are not believers. Some of us are um, agnostic or none or spiritual but not religious. So we're much more diverse. To be true to this CSC, educational mission then, what does it even mean? That's what we want to look at today. What is the focus of our zeal for today as people engaging in education at the University of Portland? My thesis is that a vision of Catholic higher education that would echo Father Moreau and others of our ancestors would be to say, in our day, our Catholic mission is best focused on educating informed graduates who are imbued with zeal for solidarity. Zeal for solidarity. This is a key teaching in Catholic, in Catholic social thought, something that I think Father Moreau would recognize as familiar, although he wouldn't have worded it that way, but in line with this idea that we want to come out of here with, with a zeal for service, for faith, and for unifying people. I also want to say from the get-go that I think this mission is both Catholic big C and Catholic small c. Um, so Catholic, Catholic. What do I mean by that? First, capital C, Catholic. Whoops. That's scary. Let's try this again. There. Okay. Capital, capital C, Catholic is 
The idea that this is a tradition that's focused deeply on a particular identity and mission, Roman, Catholicism. Now, I don't know about you, but at Fordham, I can hear students taking prospective freshmen around the campus, and they say things like to the students, don't worry, it's not too Catholic here. <laughs> It'll be okay. No, they don't push it down your throat. And that's a big selling point today, right? For most, for most students, I maybe mean, not the parents so much, but the students, you know, push it down your throat. But we can't ignore the fact that this is a very specifically religious, tradition-oriented place. That's Catholic. Um, it's based in the story of a particular human who lived at a particular time named Jesus of Nazareth, who died in a particular way, and that gives this tradition its substance. It makes it different from Buddhism, it makes it different from Hinduism, and that is something that marks everything that goes on at this university, past and present. And this, everything that Father Moreau was interested in, breaking down walls, um, healing, healing um, wounds, reconciliation, well, he was inspired by that very particular tradition. At the same time, oh wait, first I have a few pictures of, to prove my point that this is all over your campus. Okay, so here's one example. If you walk around the campus, you see this a lot, right? The very um, picture that you see on here is of the uh, congregation's uh, sort of sort of seal, right? The cross with the anchors. Um, this is somewhere um, over near the chapel, I believe. You find it everywhere. Here's on a, on a residence hall, and my personal favorite on the left, on your storm drains. <laughs> you know, there's no getting around the fact that this place is particularly marked by this Catholic Big C tradition. But I also want to propose that coming right out of the particularity is another angle. And I want to use this image of, of the cross to kind of get at this idea. If you think of the image of a cross as going down deeply and then going out, the particularity of a big C Catholicism at a place like this is what kind of anchors it and makes it what it's distinctive. But at the very same time, there's an outreach in this way of doing things that takes it beyond just sort of a sect or an insular way of looking at things and pushes us out toward everything that we have in common with the rest of the human race. Because by faith we believe we're all connected. By faith we believe everybody's a child of God. Therefore, we're going to find all things, kinds of things about God way out here, not necessarily just in our little particular Roman Catholic tradition. So I like the image of a cross to kind of get at that. This small c definition of Catholic, you can look it up in the dictionary, all-embracing, universal, diverse, wide, broad, comprehensive, all-inclusive. I don't know about you, but having grown up and lived a Catholic, Roman Catholic my whole life, I don't always think of my, my exact church as having all those viewpoints. But in the very word, narrowness is betrayed. In other words, you can't be Catholic and be completely narrow-minded. You are connected to a tradition that reaches out to the broader world. This is what Father Tom Smith, and this is on your handout, talks about when he says that the Holy Cross community has a border-crossing mission that reaches out in love and solidarity beyond boundaries. He says, okay, what kind of boundaries? Cultural and racial, national, 
religious, other belief or no belief, socioeconomic, toward the poor and needy, toward those who are excluded, and ideological outreach, crossing borders of those who think differently. Now there's an important thing to try to do in our day and age, right? We tend to end up in our own little silos, and we don't really want to cross borders to those who think differently. Um, but that's exactly what this kind of mission pushes us to do. Yes, be your own thing. Yes, have your own culture and your own group. But you cannot not do this. Earlier in my life as a Catholic and a Christian, I kind of wanted to take out the vertical beam and just keep this beam, you know, and just say, let's just reach out. I don't need to have this particularity. You know, I don't need to have a specific tradition, you know. Um, but over time, and this is different for everybody, but over time, you know, it's kind of like you, just to go like this, it's not, you, you can you get kind of dizzy. You know, you get kind of imbalanced. Um, and so for each of us, we need to see where is my vertical beam? You know, maybe for you it's something very different than Roman Catholicism. But having a particular place to locate yourself as you reach out seems to be really important. So again, Father Tom says, the borders we cross and help others to cross are the realities of our world that divide and separate us from others, that make us fear the stranger, that keep us from treating one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God. The Holy Cross people, starting in the world, really like this family image. Um, they like to say we're all part of a family. At my school, um, the president, uh, people were mad at the president, and he, picked, he always writes letters and says, Dear Fordham family, and everybody got in a bad mood and said, He talks like, like we're a family. We're not a family. We don't even like him right now. We're mad at him. And you know that when you step back for a minute, the family imagery kind of fits, right? What is a family? Are you mad at your family sometimes? You know, do you get really irritated when someone acts like everything's fine in the family and it really isn't? So it's interesting that this image of the family continues to move itself through this tradition. But again, seen in this way, the sort of down and outward, lifting high the cross, as the hymn says, implies both remaining rooted in and spreading the good news about Jesus and the gospel, and recognizing that our bonds of solidarity precede and ground any encounter or dialogue we might have beyond the borders of our particular big C tradition, whether it's for you Catholicism or something else. It means we're already connected to those people. It's not a matter of deciding to be connected. We already are. It also means humility in recognizing that G-O-D, whatever that means, if we think we know, then we, we become mistaken. It's bigger than anything we can put in a box. That G-O-D is already present really and truly in each of our neighbors, in other religious and humanistic traditions, and in the natural world around us. It's tricky to keep the two beams together, something particular and something wider, but it's essential. The CSC and UP Catholic Catholic educational mission can also be understood from another, oh, here's one more slide that has to do with that. They never said I was a smooth presenter. They said I was an okay presenter, but no. Uh, so here, here's, a, here's just a way of summing up this idea of what we've been talking about with the cross, right? On the one hand, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except me. Well, that sounds pretty exclusive, right? It's got to be Jesus. On the other hand, here's Pope Francis. All that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful brings us to God. 
And that's the two beams together. Sometimes it's paradoxical, right? But they're both essential. There's another angle that we can take on this, and because I come from a Jesuit school, I want to just throw this in. Father Moreau liked uh, Ignatius of Loyola, so I have a reason to bring this up. And that is, we can think with Bernard Lonergan about the mission of a place like this. We want to graduate people. We all, everyone here wants to be someone who has zeal for lifelong transformation. To leave here motivated and zealous, willing to do the work to be a lifelong learner, someone who's going to grow and transcend, or what Lonergan says, to be a person of intellectual, moral, and religious and effective conversion. He uses this term conversion. What does he mean? He has a very specific way of talking about this. He says, conversion is a shift in one's intellectual, moral, or affective horizon. In other words, right now you have a certain limit around which you believe things, know things, right? At the end of the semester, whatever classes you're in, your limits of intellectual knowledge will then pushed back a little bit. Your horizon will be a little bit bigger, right? Um, something you didn't know or you won't, weren't aware of, you become aware of, your horizon shifts. Up till then, I didn't even know it existed or I didn't even care. Lonergan says, beyond the horizon, you neither know nor care, because you can't, because you don't know what's beyond the horizon. But growing and learning and having an education is to push back those horizons. He says, conversion shifts your horizon of awareness, your knowing, your valuing, and your loving. So there's different dimensions of conversion. Notice he's using this word that we usually connect with uh, religion, right? I got converted, I became converted to Lutheranism or whatever, or to Buddhism. And he's using it much more broadly to moving to a new level, intellectually, morally, aesthetically. He also says something incredibly intriguing, which is he believes that the dynamics of conversion, whether it's intellectual, moral, religious, are analogous to the dynamics of falling and being in love. Wow, that, now, now you've got my interest. Um, what does it mean to fall in love? You're sort of plunged into a new horizon of relationship, right? You're like, whoa, the world looks different today. Whoa, I'm starting to see things from the point of view of another person. I feel, de I feel decentered. I feel like I've got a whole new thing going on here, right? Now, we can talk about infatuation and, and the beginnings of a relationship, but being in love is living in that new horizon, making a commitment to that new horizon, and so forth. And so, this notion of becoming an authentic person, that's really what he's talking about, a lifelong search to be more authentic, is a multifaceted process that's continually renewing and it's also very dynamic, it's also very messy, just like falling and being in love. It's also ongoing. So the three kinds of conversion he thinks that we're about as human beings are first, conversion to truth, to reality. Falling in love with what's true and not being satisfied until you have what's true. Always being willing to ask the further question. To say, yeah, but is that really true? Is that really accurate? You know, that's a tough one today with today's news, right? The drive to discover and honor what is really true. So you are, a, as a student, you're, a, you're engaged in intellectual conversion or a seeking that. 
A, a class where you don't learn anything is a dud, right? Because you want to get a new horizon. You want to move forward, and so forth. Falling in love with the search for truth. Um, he's, this is a huge area. I, I urge you to read Lonergan if you ever have an interest, because he talks about the aha moment. You know, when you go, oh, I see it now. That's a moment of your horizon shifting. Then you got to test it, right? Did I see it right? And so forth. Moral conversion. Conversion to what's good and valuable. He says, this is when you move from acting and seeing according to just my self-interest to acting and seeing according to what is good and valuable. So it may seem good to go out and drink 60,000 beers on a Friday night. It may seem really valuable to do X, Y, and Z over the weekend and not do A, B, and C. But the conversion to value says, you know, actually, you know, uh, not doing that and maybe doing my studies, that actually might be what I should be doing. That's conversion to value. Uh, maybe I should just use this other person for my own sexual gratification. That feels pretty good right now. On the other hand, this person's a human being. Maybe I should treat them with respect. Self-interest to value. That's a conversion. That's an ongoing moral conversion. And then finally, conversion to love. So falling in love with what's good, and then falling in love with love, with loving, with being a person who, in the jargon of Catholicism, wants to freely give themselves as gift in relationship with others and to, give, to help the world. And this is, he calls this affective conversion. And in many, for people who are religious, it's religious conversion because falling in love with love is falling in love with God, ultimately. Okay, on to the next, whoops. Part two, solidarity in the title. The modern Catholic social tradition. How many people have heard of Catholic social thought? Okay, good percentage, okay. So what is modern Catholic social thought? Well, I say here the modern Catholic social tradition uh, because basically ever since Jesus was around, there's been people thinking about what this has to do with society, right? What does it have to do with society that I follow this guy, Jesus? But in 1891, there began a sort of modern version of that, that consideration with Pope Leo XIII, who's up there on the right, when he wrote a letter, public letter called an encyclical, trying to address the suffering and the injustice being experienced by working class people in the late 19th century with the Industrial Revolution and so forth and so on. It was called On the Condition of Labor. And it was the first time in the modern world that the Roman Catholic Church got out there and said, we're on the side of workers. We're on the side of justice. We're on the side of just pay. We're on the side of unions. Because people in those situations, they don't have the power. They need to have the power. And we need to be on their side. It was a big deal because in the 19th century, if you know history, the church was very defensive. It sort of closed in. It had kind of gone for the, this beam and kind of forgotten about that beam. And so this was a new move by a fairly conservative guy that said, we've got to get out there and say that the gospel says justice is due to people, especially vulnerable people. So this particular tradition um, becomes something that goes on. Popes write these letters. You might have been familiar or remember when Laudato Si came out with Pope Francis. He was following in that same tradition of modern Catholic social teaching. 
A lot of what it is about is putting out principles that can allow people to recognize that taking risky action on behalf of others for a better and more just society is at the heart of what it means to be not just a good human being, but also a good Christian if you're a Christian. Both of those things. It's definitely a Catholic-Catholic thing because it's always been about, well, we were talking about human things, you know, living wages isn't just a Catholic thing, that's a human thing. So it's definitely about that crossroads of Catholic and Catholic. I want to just mention that this tradition is grounded in, words are nice, but what's really important is um, the people who live it out. And here's a collage of some people who've lived it out, many of them have died trying to make life better for people, trying to bring justice, protesting injustice, um, all around the world. And so um, that's the more fundamental thing. It's what people are doing on the ground. The teaching reflects that and kind of you know mirrors and inspires that, but it comes up from the ground. I love John Howard Yoder has this line about, you know, compared to what people do on the ground, um, teaching is like the froth to the beer. The beer is what people really do. And that's true in many ways uh, today about a lot of things, right? The backdrop of modern Catholic social teaching is the very basic beliefs of Christianity um, that say that God wants everyone to flourish. We were created for right relationships, uh, otherwise known as peace. This is the Garden of Eden imagery, otherwise known in Hebrew as shalom. You may have heard that word shalom in Hebrew means peace. Um, it doesn't mean no fighting. It means all the relationships being right. A situation where all your relationships with yourself, with your neighbor, with nature, with God are right. That's the image of Eden. And that's the image that is broken in our world today. So the belief in sin and fall and evil and all that to say, this is what God wants. This is what we have, a broken window. We're called to try to bring the world closer to that peace and that shalom in a very difficult set of circumstances. There's a hope in the gospel way of looking at things that there's some good news we can always be aware of. And again, this is a faith stance, right? If you boil down what the gospel is about, it's the belief that truth and love and life are stronger than evil and lies and death. Do you believe that? Don't have to be a Christian to believe that, right? It's an interesting question. Is it true that truth and love and life are stronger than lies and evil and death? Interesting to think about, at least for me it is. Uh, notice the picture here. This is a Chinese painter. It's the picture of the women at the empty tomb. So for Christianity, it's not like it's all solved. Religion doesn't solve anything. Uh, because the tomb's empty doesn't mean Jesus rose from the dead, right? That might just be a nice story somebody made up. Um, but this idea that there's a hope here, that what it says at the top is true, and that's what Christians believe. And there are many people who aren't Christians who believe that too, and those are the people who work together for justice. Okay. So with this viewpoint, we're made for peace, the world's a mess, we have the hope that we can make something different, we are impelled outward as Christians and as humans, to work for justice in a suffering world. I love these doors on your chapel, because to me they look like a big explosion. You know, boom, you go outwards, right? Um, I guess it's a sunburst, 
Uh, but I think it's also about Jesus and the resurrection and all this stuff, many layers to this. But that's what Catholic social thought and tradition is about, about going out there to try to make the world a better place. And then there are a number of principles, and again, some of you know this, and you can, I put on your sheet places where you can read more. That everyone has dignity, that respect for life is ubiquitous, that we are social beings who belong to, who are meant to share in a common good. Justice is empowerment and participation, not handouts or just charity to passive victims. Everybody, it's not just if everybody's passive. It's only just if everybody's participating and included. And then solidarity, we'll talk more about this, and the preferential option for the poor and marginalized is indispensable to ensuring dignity and justice for all. Sort of like the ways that you get toward that. And there's a huge literature around this, and most importantly, huge numbers of lives of people who are trying to do this sort of thing. To say just a little bit more about the common good... It's not just me over the, over the group, as we tend to think about in our culture. It's not just the group over me. That's where we, say, we hear people say, oh, that's socialism. You can't have, you can't have national health care because that's socialism. It puts the group over the individual. This is very interesting because it, it doesn't cut either way. It's basically saying everybody's, very, uh, everybody's unique self counts, and at the same time, you're also part of something bigger. Both of those things are true. And interestingly, theologically, religiously, the ultimate common good, the thing that where we get all the good, is God. So God is the big common good. In society, there are communal goods, like, and in the world, like air, which we're struggling with right now because of the fires, right? Um, like water, um, within society, like education. Um, like health care, and then there are personal goods. And so in a good society, all those things, the good of each and all, are being pursued and respected. At the same time, as we've already said, uh, the world's screwed up. We live in a broken world. And so one of the things about Catholic social thought is it's very realistic. The world is filled with injustice, and increasingly it's talked about social and structural problems. That's something you learn about in a lot of your classes, I'm sure. John Paul II spoke a lot about this, and one of the things that's intriguing is this tradition also says, yeah, but you know what? There's something you can do about these structural problems. And the word they use for that is solidarity. John Paul II said, you know, these social problems and structural problems, the things we inherit, the things we didn't do ourselves, racism, sexism, poverty. Nobody individually here started those things. They're very systemic and difficult, but there's a path that we can take that can make a difference, and that's solidarity. So in a way, structural just injustices, social bad, common bads. We want common goods, but we have a lot of common bads that affect us. And so solidarity becomes uh, a way of building the common good and fighting common bads. And in fact, this brings back this idea of uh, having zeal to build a common good. Like T Father Tom said, crossing the boundaries, being a reconciler, having the guts to say, let's talk about this disagreement we have. Let's talk about why you voted for so-and-so and I voted for so-and-so. And let's try to talk about that in a way where we respect one another. 
Let's not just go into our media silos and talk with people who agree with us. It's really hard to work against the common bads that affect us and shut us down and work for unity. But that's what solidarity is about. At the very basic meaning of solidarity is that de facto, we're already connected. De facto, the Pope Francis says this a lot, everything is connected and everyone is connected. I think you in the younger generation know this better than anybody because you're aware of things like the ecological crisis. You realize that things are interconnected. And this is what this tradition is saying. So, you know, there's a cute little picture there of how the animals and the people are, and a quote from, from Francis. But at the bottom, there are some of the workers that made maybe the t-shirt that you're wearing right now in another side of the world. We're connected to those people because of our global economy, right? So de facto solidarity means we're connected as a fact. So you start with a fact. And on your sheet, I believe I have this next thing. Um, in this Catholic social tradition, John Paul and others say, solidarity is three things. First of all, it's again a fact, we're already connected. And recognizing that fact, that's a big deal, to start recognizing that fact. Secondly, he says, solidarity is a moral virtue. When you say, okay, I gotta take responsibility for those relationships. I gotta realize that it might mean that I have to act in a certain way or do something different because I am interconnected. Think about recycling. You've grown up in an era where everybody recycled probably, right? I didn't. You know, talk about changing your horizon and conversion. I can remember like throwing, this is when I was really young, being out in the country and just throwing garbage out the window. We were driving along and nobody thought anything of it. Now it's like, I think back and I say, oh my God, I can't believe we did that, right? Um, I don't know about you, but you know, I feel guilty if I don't recycle something because it's become part of my way of seeing the world, that I'm hurting the world if I don't recycle. And if I have a peanut butter jar I don't want to clean out, it's like, is anybody going to notice if I put this in the regular garbage? You know, that's my sin, my finitude, you know, saying, I don't want to take responsibility to, to clean out this jar today. But that's, that's the idea of saying, I am related. That peanut butter jar makes a difference in the world. I need to do something. That's the moral virtue of solidarity. And then thirdly, it's a spiritual virtue for those people who are religious and Christian. The idea that I see my relationship to the world and others as God-given. That I'm connected to everything because we're all children of God and creatures of God. And therefore, I'm impelled to give myself for the sake of the common good. So it's a multifaceted thing. Here's a quote from um, Pope John, Pope Francis, who gets at this idea uh, of how many facets there are to solidarity. He says, the word solidarity refers to something more than a few sporadic acts of generosity. It presumes the creation of a new mindset, a new way of seeing. That thinks in terms of community, I think this is on your sheet, and the priority of the life of all over the appropriation of goods by a few. It means working to eliminate the structural causes of poverty and promote the integral development of the poor as well as, and this is a relief, the small daily acts of solidarity. Your roommate looks sad. Do you say something? Do you ask? Or do you just keep going? That's solidarity too in meeting the real needs that we encounter every day. So it's about every day, little things, and it's about the big things as well. 
Also, this tradition has increasingly gotten this idea from Latin American liberation theology originally um, that's, that we have to focus solidarity in a certain way. You can, you can think about all kinds of relationships in your life, right? How do you know where to focus? We need to focus solidarity in light of a preferential concern for the most poor, for the most vulnerable, and the most marginalized. You know, I think we have this in us, a sort of, a sort of an instinct. Like when you, I don't know about you, but when you watch sports teams, I sometimes just find myself going, uh, uh, rooting for the underdog. I don't even know who the teams are, but whoever's behind, you know, I'm like, oh, I want them to win, you know, because they seem to be more vulnerable. They seem to be having a harder time. So there's something in us that looks toward the more vulnerable sometimes, you know. Well, we need to help that little child first because they're more vulnerable and so forth. So this tradition of solidarity is saying, yeah, you've got to think in terms of who needs help the most. And including the, 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 the planet, the climate, the earth, right? Which is very vulnerable as well. If you take this stance of preferential option for the vulnerable, there are some kind of radical implications. Here's one way that the bishops of Canada put it a few years back. The needs of the poor have priority over the wants of the rich. Okay, I'm already getting nervous. The rights of workers are more important than the maximization of profits. Those of you in the business program, that doesn't really necessarily fit with what you're being taught, right? The participation of the marginalized groups has precedence over a system which excludes them. Again, if you think about those things, they're kind of radical. And again, they make me nervous because they sort of imply a lot of change if you took them seriously, right? So in light of all this, solidarity calls for action. Everybody has a different way of being active. Everybody's called to various different things. It might be I'm raising my small child, and therefore I'm in solidarity with the people on my block right now. It might be getting out there in the streets. It might be writing your congressperson. There's lots of different ways to do it, but action is definitely called for. So solidarity is a way of seeing. I'm connected. Judging. I have some responsibilities. And acting. I gotta do something. I find this incredibly challenging and difficult because it decenters my normal life, which is what do I need to do today for me? <laughs> which is really, you know, how I kind of tend to live my life for, my, for what people expect of me on this particular day. And this action in this tradition is Catholic Catholic, always in collaboration and respectful um, uh, communication with. Everybody who cares about this stuff. Doesn't matter whether you're a believer or a different kind of faith and so forth. This is, this takes us out here. Solidarity takes us out here, big time. But the question is, okay, how? This is not easy. Um, I love this, uh, walking, the, walking the walk is easy. Talking is easy, walking is hard, right? I love this cartoon. Who wants change? Or who goes, yes, we want change, we want change. Who wants to change? Oh, well, no, maybe not. You know, it's, I think it's very human, right? We need change. Why is the government doing this? What do you want to do differently so to make, to make oh, well, I'm sorry, I don't have time for that. You know, we're good at complaining. <laughs> but, but it's not easy. And I want to suggest that at the root of the difficulty is we're really being drawn down to a deeper level here. 
In order to be people of solidarity, we need a deeper orientation of our mind and heart. And I want to just call it this. We need to unclench ourselves. Before I ever saw this picture, I never realized how ugly a clenched fish, fist looks, especially when it's huge and six feet tall, you know? And I think that guy needed to clean his fingernails. But, you know, this idea that we are taught in our world to keep it together, to protect ourselves, to be careful, to make sure we're secure. What kind of job are you going to get with that major? You know? Um, how are you going to pay those bills? And those, not to say those aren't real concerns, but what do you make your greatest priority? Um, versus to open ourselves, we're taught to close down. So the clench thing. So why do we do it? Why, do we, why, why are we like this? Well, I, say, I think we're scared. And there's reason to be scared, right? I don't know if I can pay my student loans. I don't know if I can, you know, make my way in the world. I don't know who you are. You're a stranger. You could hurt me. I gotta be careful. I can't stop and help you. Maybe you're a crazy person. You might stab me. You know, we're taught again and again and again to be careful. And again, is that bad? Not necessarily, but do we take it too far? Um, and as when we live a life with a clenched mind and a clenched heart and clenched, tightly drawn boundaries around our care and concern. Our clenched, closed in minds and hearts cling to security and resist change. Don't change. Stay put. Don't have time for this. And I'm talking about myself. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not pointing the finger at you. You know what your mother said, when you point your finger one way, there's four of them pointing at you. you know, that, that, I'm talking about myself and my own struggle. But what solidarity asks for is really a change of heart, of saying, I really want to unclench, I want to take one little finger out of my fist and open it up. Notice this is like going from this to this again, right? I just take a couple of little fingers off my clenched heart and open them up just a little bit like that. Uh, it's a path of opening hearts, minds, and hands, being touched. Let yourself be touched by the realities of our interdependent world to, so that we can respond with the gifts that only we can give. And that can happen in such small ways or in really huge ways throughout your life. Now, this takes us to why don't we want to unclench? Um, by the way, who is the most unclenched person, at least for Christians? Jesus, right? That image of Jesus on the cross? Pretty darn unclenched. But that's why we're scared, right? Because when you open up your hand, what can happen? Someone can stick a nail in it. I'm really scared by that. Uh, but that, I do believe that that's what I'm called to do. So, it takes us back to suffering in the cross. Doggone it. In the 1950s, the philosopher Jacques Maritain says this really well about solidarity. He says it's in, on your sheet as well. Given the human condition, the most significant synonym for living together is suffering together. And he says, if you're going to do something, inevitably it's going to mean you're going to have to suffer a little bit in order to get that task done. You know this from sports. He says, what kind of suffering am I talking about? 
The suffering that comes with living with each other and the suffering due to solidarity. The sufferings due to solidarity. If you start opening up your hands and heart, yes, you will suffer. But guess what? Suffering might be not a weakness, but a power. Do you know that there, that there is an, uh, now an archaic, but a definition in the Oxford Dictionary? The second definition used to be the power to undergo an effect of suffering. Suffering, the power to undergo an effect. It was a chemical, chemi chemistry meaning. But it's interesting to think that way. You know, can you endure what you need to endure to make things better for someone else or for yourself? So Meritian offers uh, Catholic Catholic because what he said had nothing necessarily to do with Christianity. It just had to do with being living in the world take on the costs of unclenched living, and also on the CSC motto, and this whole idea of the cross that's so big for Father Moreau. This idea that the cross is our only hope. But I want to spend a little time now just wondering about that with you. I mean, really? The cross is our only hope? Do you feel like your education is teaching you to trust in the cross? Sounds a little too big C Catholic, right? Like, what does that even mean, whether you're Christian or not? Um, it's interesting, this picture, and you have it on your sheet. This is the first recorded evidence of Christians being associated with the cross. And it's from the third century. So you don't see Christians even talk, uh, using art, crosses in their art, probably till the third century in Rome. And it's a graffiti. It's a graffiti that's making fun of somebody. Um, and the statement is uh, in, in uh, Latin, Alexamonus worshiping his God. So some friend of Alex is making fun of him for being a Christian, and he makes this graffiti. Um, what do you see on the cross? An ass. Right? So you have a God that's really pretty much of an ass if your God is crucified. We don't remember this today because we see crosses so often, how gross that symbol really is, especially for ancient people. How scandalous it was to say that Jesus shows us God dying on a cross. And so even back then and all the way up to today, it raises a question, isn't taking this unclenched path where you might end up like this, you know, this and this, isn't that kind of realistically foolish? Isn't it really naive? Isn't it really dumb? Maybe it's even dangerous? You know, maybe my parents were right that I have to be care, care about being careful all the time. I want my kids to be careful. So it really raises quite big questions and, you know, ultimately this question of how can the cross be or inspire hope? How? I want to suggest that in three ways this is possible, that the cross can inspire hope. First of all, because it makes this path realistic. It brings reality into the picture because suffering happens. Nobody gets away with, it, with no suffering. Our culture says, take a pill. You should if you're, if you're hurting. You know, get, get therapy. There must be a way that you shouldn't have to hurt. Um, I once heard someone say that all forms of addiction, addictive behavior, you know, watching video, playing video games for 25 hours, watching Jump TV for 3,000 hours, or all the different things you might do, um, eating 10,000 potato chips, my personal favorite. Uh, you know, all those addictive behaviors that we have, uh, they're all an effort to run away from suffering. 
It's pretty interesting. Anything you do that's addictive, I'm trying to avoid suffering. And so as humans, we try to avoid suffering. But it happens, and that's what I like. What's great about the cross is it says, guess what? Suffering's real. It happens. Um, Father Moreau knew this too. He says, you know, S blank, 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 blank happens, right? Um, Shit happens. And here's a quote from him. He says, um, uh, what does he say? He says, whether it's unfair treatment, he's talking to his early members. Fatigue or frustration at work, a lapse of health, tasks beyond talents, does that sound familiar? Seasons of loneliness, bleakness in prayer, the aloofness of your friends, or whether it be the sadness of having inflicted any of this on others. In other words, I screw up, I hurt other people. There will be dying to do on the way to the Father. Interesting line. Suffering and sorrow are real. So that's the first thing. It it gets real about realities in life, the cross symbol does. Secondly, the cross expresses God's intimate solidarity with everyone who suffers and suffering creation. Look at that garish crucifix on the right. Some of you may recognize it. It's from South America, um, from an indigenous poor community. That's the kind of suffering of the really, really poor who can't feed their children. That's where that crucifix comes from. And the sense that Jesus understands, God understands, God is with me in my suffering. You never suffer alone. That's the second thing that the cross uh, does for those who find hope in it. And then thirdly, there's the hope in the cross as not the end. The hope that things are never hopeless. The idea that the cross and death and suffering and torture is not the end of the story no matter how horrible it is. That's the belief in Easter and the resurrection, right? Um, This is um, uh, Moreau again. All is swallowed up in victory. No matter how much bad things are happening bad, there's something more on the other side. Now that's faith, right? You can't prove that to anybody. You might not believe that, but that's what the cross belief involves. Okay, now I'm way off my script here, and I want to get you out of here. Um, by the way, so I think, again, I think your doors are a great symbol for this because it's beyond the suffering, there's the explosion of life. Despite the rocks, there's the little flowers that come through. Um, again, you can put this in natural terms or in religious terms. Over here on the right is a picture of uh, something that isn't in the Bible at all, but Christians have always told this story about after the resurrection. You know who those two people are? Jesus, right? And who else? His mother, There's nothing in the gospel about this. But the idea that the man of sorrows and the lady of sorrows are going to see each other again. And Jesus is going to see his mom and say, Mom, I'm all right. There's always been art and belief in this, even though it's not in the gospels at all. And that's hope beyond death. That's what the cross does in terms of offering hope. Do we buy it? I don't know, but I think those are the avenues, at least for me, that the cross can offer hope for on a human level, I think, as well as on a specifically Christian level. In conclusion, Brian Doyle, some of you may know, was a writer who uh, was at Portland for many years, uh, who recently died. He's a beautiful writer. If if you're interested in good writing, read some of his essays. He has some really neat uh, reflections on the chapel Um, here at the University of Portland that I think kind of make the chapel for me sort of a symbol of what the whole education thing here at UP is is about. 
Um, and I think you have this on your sheet, but I just want to read it for you briefly. Let's see. So he writes about the building of the chapel, and here you have the mixture of the meanings of the materials and the meanings of the, um, the, the chapel itself. He says, uh, Pietro Bellucci built it using different kinds of woods. He wanted to make a cabin that would fit in its place, big enough for hundreds of people, but not arrogant. He used brick and stone and tile, but mostly it's wood. Does that remind you of wood? Beams of fir, roof of hemlock and pine, floor of white oak, kneelers and lectern of cherry. And he wanted mammoth doors. There's your doors. Herculean doors, doors as big as boats. So he asked his friend, friend Leroy Seitzel, to carve the doors, which he did. Huge things, big as trees. Leroy said, wood has its own history. I just try to cooperate with it. I want to see how, where it takes me. So he waited and waited for the right wood to cooperate with. And he finally, one day, three huge felled black walnut trees came up on the shore on the Oregon coast. And Leroy said, okay, those are the ones. There's some black, black walnut there. And he took those things and he carved them. And he says, he had them hauled up to his wood shop. And he cut the doors, four tons of walnut incised with a sunburst and a branching vine and all other kinds of symbols of Christ who had once been Joshua ben Joseph, this, old, this itinerant, incredibly remote preacher during the Roman Empire. So this idea that the death of nature brings new life through the wood of the chapel is kind of interesting and fits, I think, with this idea of the openness to suffering in order to make something new happen. He then talks about, here's, here, he goes, here he goes into this sort of more Catholic, small c. It's not just about Roman Catholic worship. He says, I sit in this small chapel drawn to it not so much for its role as a religious house, but for its virtues as prism, refuge, and fulcrum. It's a room where powers and pains of all sorts are gathered again and again and again, simmered and melted and melted and stewed. Perhaps the daily marshalling of emotion is what gives the place its holiness more than its official duties. Perhaps words and smoke, smoke, and tears and music and long, empty hours all soak into the wooden walls and season it in unimaginable ways. Um, so it's not just about specifically Christian religious, it's about living the deep human life and the suffering and the joy and the pain of that. That's what the chapel stands for, too. On the day the chapel was dedicated, the, the, the architect, Pietro Bellucci, said the following, A church is more than a building. It is people coming together to evoke God's harmony. It is our hope that the qualities which we have tried to impart in this structure, inadequate as they are, will endure and move people to, get this, incomparable adventures of the spirit. Okay, now I've got to get my text. I can read you my last page. What the architect said about his chapel, I think, can be said of the larger structure of UP. 
or a Catholic university of any kind or the institutional church and in any, any institution, really, because no matter how well-constructed, institutions have their flaws and their limits. Um, in fact, any institution is going to break your heart. If you love it, it's going to break your heart, um, whether it's the church or this school. In many ways, the CSCs broke Father Moreau's heart. He had a very difficult time toward the end. Yet amid all the limitations and frailness, Father Moreau's vision continues here at UP to get today to gather and form women and men for incomparable adventures of the spirit. In all the different things you do here at, here at I was going to say boredom, at, here, at, here at UP, um, that there are ways in which through your studies, through your service, through your friendships and so forth, People's, people whose study and reflection and your experiences of discernment can burst forth into lives of solidarity, of zeal for upholding beauty and dignity of each of God's children and creatures, building right relationships that contribute toward a peace-filled, riotously diverse common good that God intends and is. Cultivating that kind of life in, through, the, through your UP education, uh, invites us to go against the grain, to rub against what we're expected to be in our society. And indeed, it's risky and it's kind of crazy in a culture that tells us to clench yourself tightly, stay cool, protect yourself, keep the borders of your concern tightly drawn. Here at UP and all our Catholic universities, we're invited to choose to be the opposite of cool. We're invited to choose zeal, Zeal for cultivating self-transcending minds and hearts and courageous, solidary ways of living over a whole lifetime. This uncool path can be thrilling, but it's also demanding, toilsome, and bumpy. Along the way, we're going to meet, for sure, repeatedly, frustrations and setbacks and, well, yes, crosses. This is why Pope Francis says we shouldn't go it alone. And he also keeps saying, especially to young people, don't let yourself be robbed of hope. Find other people that can uphold you in this. But though it's hard and risky, opening ourselves in school and in life to the incomparable adventures of the spirit can unlock the doors to our deeper desires and most authentic fulfillment. In so doing, we can build the courage to bear the sufferings of solidarity as we help one another's gifts explode into the universe. Break through the rocks and ripple out into a world that desperately needs your faith, your hope, and your active love. Thank you for listening, and I wish you and your spirits a year of incomparable adventures and of growing zeal for solidarity. Thank you.